All right, what's going on everybody? This is Josh again. Um, I'm sure that you're getting sick and tired of the original introduction, so I'm gonna give you a new intro. Um, I'm just gonna tell you what I was just doing, and uh, yeah, it was dope. So I just made some bread. I have a sourdough starter that's two years old now. It's um, It turned two in February, so it's starting to get up there. It was from a 10-year starter beforehand. Um, super sour, smells great. <clears throat> made this delicious wheat flour. I threw a little chicken and cilantro on it and had a wonderful sandwich. So now that I've eaten lunch, we're going to get into this episode, episode 11 of Protein Folding. This is a pretty exciting episode. I think, you know, when I was going through this um, originally, I got lost in the sauce. It was just a little bit too much. So I want to I wanna start back and do a broad, just like Let's remind you of the different types, right? Let's compartmentalize all this information so that way when we get into the depths, we have boxes to put all this info into, okay? So let's remind ourselves, right? Proteins can be modified, right? There's a few different ways to modify proteins. You can phosphorylate them. You can um, hydroxylate them. You can glycosylate them, right? I talked about how um, you can modify specific amino acids via glycosylation, glycosylation, hydroxylation, and phosphorylation, remember? So hopefully you remember that um, those, when you phosphorylate something glycosylated or hydroxylated, you're going to increase its um, hydrophilicity, right? It's going gonna, it's gonna to be drawn towards water. Um, but you can also do something called hydrophobic modifications, right? And we'll get into why that's important and where that occurs. Um, so I just wanted to remind you of the general types, okay? So now I want to talk about the specifics of each type, right, for phosphorylation, when you phosphorylate a protein, okay? So this is uh, a lot of proteins which um, get phosphorylated are actually cyclin-dependent kinases, right? This is important for cell cycle control. Um, it's usually done by a kinase, um, right, and this kinase activates the protein. So a kinase is going to phosphorylate the protein, it's then going to become active, right? Dephosphorylation of protein, which deactivates the protein, is done by a phosphatase. So these are important, right? A kinase phosphorylates, a phosphatase dephosphorylates. And this uh, phosphorylation usually occurs at the hydroxyl group of this um, protein. And these, pro and these hydroxyl groups are usually found on serine, three, uh, threonine, and then tyrosine as well, right? If you remember, each one has this OH group that's just great for phosphorylation. The next kind of protein modification that I'm going to talk about is glycosylation, right? So um, phosphorylation of proteins, this can happen usually anywhere, um, but glycosylation occurs in the endoplasmic reticulum in the Golgi apparatus, okay? This increases the hydrophilicity of the proteins, right? And these proteins, once they're glycosylated, this, you know, when you have some sort of glycosylated protein, it's going to end up being used in the plasma membrane, right? I don't know if you know much about um, uh, signaling uh, of uh, extracellular signaling, but usually they're looking for these like glucose or sugar groups on the outside. So it's going to be in the plasma membrane. It could also be in secretory and lysosomal proteins. These all get uh, glycosylated, right? Secretory, you're going to end up getting sent to the plasma membrane and then lysosomal proteins, right? So um, cytosolic and nuclear proteins, however, are not glycosylated. So I'm going to repeat this, okay? Proteins that end up either being secreted, get put in our plasma membrane, or end up in the lysosomes are, can be, are glycosylated. Proteins which end up in the cytosol, right, floating around in the cytosol, or end up in the nuclear membrane are not glycosylated, 
okay? And there's something called the NDP, which binds to sugar, which imports it into the cell. And then glycosyl transferase binds sugar to uh, the protein in the ER and Golgi, right? So basically, you have this thing, NDP brings sugar into the cell, and then that sugar, uh, the glycosylation, right, via glycosyl transferase binds that sugar to the protein. And this occurs, like I said, in the ER and Golgi. And if you remember from a while ago, there's two types of glycosylation. There's N-link glycosylation and O-link glycosylation. And remember how I was like, you know, this is going to be important. I'll explain later. But the but O-link glycosylation and N-link glycosylation occur in different places. Remember I said glycosylation occurs in the ER and the Golgi? Well, N-link glycosylation, N-linked glycosylation occurs in the endoplasmic reticulum whereas O-link glycosylation occurs in the Golgi apparatus. If you remember what the endoplasmic reticulum does, it makes proteins, right? And then the Golgi apparatus um, basically creates vesicles to secrete outside of the cell, <clears throat> or it creates um, other vesicles that can then be transferred to other organelles within the cell. So I want to go ahead and start with just um, N-linked uh, glycosylation. So what's going to occur basically is the ribosome, which is attached at the membrane between um, the cytosol and the ER, right? So the in inside the ER is called the ER lumen. And basically mRNA is going to be read in the cytosol via a ribosome. And then on the, in the internally in the ER lumen, a protein is going to be made. Now as this protein is made, um, asparginine is going to be a part of this peptide complex, right? It's going to read, it's going to say, you know, here's a bunch of amino acids and bam, there's an asparginine. And this asparginine is going to undergo potentially glycosylation. And what's going to happen, okay, is this thing called UDP, which is um, basically a, a phosphate carrier group that also can basically bind sugars from the cytosol, which were brought in originally via um, something called NDP. So there's sugars in the cytosol. It's going to, these like long chain sugars with a bunch of sugars attached are going to bind to this UDP. The UDP is going to be able to basically flip from the, 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 uh, across the ER lumen from the cytosol side into the ER lumen. And then using glycosyl transferase, it's going to end up transferring that sugar onto this asparginine group, right? And, um, that's how N-linked glycosylation occurs. So again, I'm going to say this one more time, all right? So that um, carbohydrate in the cytosol binds to UDP, which then flips over to the, from the cytosol to the ER lumen side, and then binds it to asparginine on the growing peptide uh, chain, right? via a glycosyl transferase, right? And then once this, uh, you know, then there's some things that might remove sugars, you know, for quality control. And then this N-linked, right, the ER is going to send this protein then to the Golgi apparatus, right? And before it does that, the interesting part, right, is that the N-linked glycosylation, um, you know, what it can do is it can attach this thing called M6P, mannose-6-phosphate, and what this does, if you have a mannose-6-phosphate attached to a peptide, it will always head to the lysosome, right? M6P, mannose-6-phosphate, basically tags proteins to be proteins within a lysosome. And we'll get to what a lysosome does, but basically a lysosome is what breaks down other proteins. So it'll act as an enzyme to help break down proteins. If Again, I'm going to repeat this one more time because this is sort of high yield. You'll get questions on this where it's talking about N-link glycosylation. And if a protein gets tagged with M6P, it's going to ask you where it's heading. And that means it's going to head for lysosome. Uh, it's a lysosomal protein, okay?
So now let's talk about O-link glycosylation, right? O-link glycosylation occurs in the Golgi, and since proteins are made in the endoplasmic reticulum and then head to the Golgi, you can then just say that N-linked occurs first, O-linked occurs after. And um, sugars in this situation are added one at a time, starting at the OH group of serine or threonine. Right, remember how I said in N-link glycosylation, you can have these long, basically sugar chains of just like mannose, glucose, glucose, mannose, like a bunch of different sugars attached to each other. And then those get like basically bound to UDP, flipped over, and then bound to asparginine and N-link glycosylation. In O-link glycosylation, you add sugars one at a time to serine or threonine groups. Good. We've now talked about the two types of glycosylation. Both of these increase hydrophilicity, right? And when you increase hydrophilicity, you decrease the chances of proteolysis, right, or degradation of your protein. So let's talk about some examples where uh, glycosylating things um, are important. So I want you to picture, like, <clears throat> like, let's say there's, like, sugar water on the desk, right? And that sugar water, as it begins to dry, gets sticky, right? Well, guess what? Your boogers are basically water and sugar. And as those sugars dry up, they can get sticky. I'm sure everybody's picked their nose. Some of you might have even eaten it. But the reality is, is that mucins, right, which shield our epithelium, make up a lot of our mucus. Mucus comes from our nose. It also is secreted in our digestive system. There's a lot of different places where mucins are secreted. You get it in your lungs a little bit. So, like, these shield the epithelium, and they're basically 80 to 100... Um, uh, amino acid polypeptides with a ton of serine and threonine residues. And basically, when you, well, as we talked about, right, serine, threonine, right, heavy residues, this is going to make a lot of sense. I hope you're following. Serine and threonine, right, we talked about how this is O-linked glycosylation, right? You're going to have an O-linked OH group getting it, sugars bound to it. And then guess what the Golgi does? It secretes things, right? So you're going to have these 80 to 100 polypeptide amino acids with a ton of serine threonine residues getting O-linked, which makes sense because it's in the Golgi, and then it's going to end up getting secreted as mucin. And what this does is this mucin gets secreted and it creates this mucinous barrier. And this is actually great for protecting us from bacteria, Sometimes it'll bind up some other things like dust, and basically it keeps it from like settling. And then because it's now in this like congealed ball of sugar and water, we have these things called cilia, which you'll remember hopefully from when we talked about cytoskeletal elements, that then can move it up our respiratory tract, for instance, and allow us to cough it out rather than it just sitting there. So that's an example of how mucins, right? Are glycosylated proteins and why they're sort of important for us. Another example is the influenza virus, right? So influenza virus is able to cleave sialic acid residues from these mucin proteins. And this is one of the reasons why, despite us secreting mucin, right, the influenza virus can still get in despite our epithelial protective layer and all that, right? Because it's able to cleave these sialic acid residues from the mucin protein, rendering it useless, right, and no longer protective. And then there's actually, um, you know, some diseases that are high yield. This you'll you'll just look at, and basically they they uh, are congenital diseases of of glycosylation. There's two types. There's either a defect in the assembly or transfer of these glucoses onto this peptide. This is 
an issue with your glycosyl transferase, um, potentially an issue with your UDP, right? And then there's type 2, which is a defect in the oligosaccharide, uh, oligosaccharide processing. Remember how I said like these huge um, sugar molecules can get cleaved later on for quality control? Well, if you have an issue with cleaving those proteins, you're going to have the two, second type of congenital diseases of glycosylation, okay? So we've really, we've really talked about a lot so far. We've talked about phosphorylation. We've talked about glycosylation. These are all hydrophilic modifications for proteins. The last thing I want to talk about are hydrophobic modifications for proteins. This is sort of a lot, okay? I know this is a lot, and I hope you've been following. I hope you're not getting overwhelmed. I'm trying to compartmentalize these things, okay? So we've talked about hydrophilic. Let's talk about hydrophobic. There's three kinds, okay? There's mistrilation, right? M-Y-R-I-S-T-O-Y-L-A-T-I-O-N. Mistrilation. This is tough. These are big words. Mistrilation. There's palmitilation. And then there's farnicillation. Okay? There's three kinds I want you to be familiar with. Okay? Key words here. For mistrilation, there's an irreversible attachment of a fatty acid, right, to the protein. It's bound to the end terminal of a glycine residue. Remember how I said glycine was this uh, interesting molecule? It just has like this one nitrogen group, no really side chain, nothing like that. So remember, meristrelation happens at the end terminal of these glycine residues, and it's the irreversible attachment of a fatty acid. Whereas palmitylation, this is linked to the internal cysteine residues. So meristrelation is glycine residues and it's irreversible linkage of a fatty acid. Palmitylation happens at the cysteine residues, and it actually is a reversible of attachment of a fatty acid, okay? And then finally, you have farnicillation. And with farnicillation, what we're gonna basically have is this protein, and then at the very end of the protein, you're gonna have a cytosine, right, which has a sulfur group, and then two long carbon hydrophobic chains, uh, amino acids with two long carbon hydrophobic chains. Think leucine, isoleucine. And then the final one is going to be anything it pleases. The important part here is, though, that it's going to have basically this OH group, right? That's the last part of this, like, um, chain of any, any amino acid. The last part of it is going to have this OH group. But anyways, this is called the, the CAAX, CAAX complex. Right, And what you're going to do is basically there's a farnicyl group that's going to get attached to that cytosine at that sulfur hydroxyl group. And what that is going to do is it's going to inactivate that protein. And in order for our body to reactivate it, we have to cleave that farnicyl group back off. And then you have the active protein again. Okay, So let me repeat what I just said. For farnicylation, in order for a protein to be farnicylated, it has to have a C-A-A-X complex. Okay, C for cytosine. A for aliphatic log carbon hydrophobic chains, two of those, and then X, anything it pleases, okay? When uh, our body recognizes that, it's going to use this thing called farnicyl transferase to transfer this farnicyl group onto that sulfur uh, group of the cytosine, right? And then from there, it'll be inactivated. Naturally, our body then can use this thing called ftase, uh, which inhibits the farnicylation from occurring, right? Um, and it also, I'm sorry, uh, that's, <laughs> let me go back. Then you can use basically um, uh, a farnicyl transferase again to cleave the farnicyl group back off, reactivating the protein. There's a disease called progeria, 
which basically leaves this modification permanently. So furnacelation, you should be able to basically be reversible. But in progeria, it's irreversible modif uh, because we don't have the ability to basically cut off that furnacel group once we've attached it. This leads to a disease caused progeria. You can read all about it um, on your own. We're going to get into it later. But it's a, it's a really... Um, interesting disease and this is actually the cause of it. It's basically uh, our inability to um, reverse this furnacelation modification of the protein. Um, and what I meant to say was ftase inhibits furnacelation and if we're able to give somebody a lot of ftase we could potentially find a treatment for progeria. This is in research. It's sort of an interesting thing. So that's what I got for you guys. That is um, protein modification down to the nitty-gritty. It's what you need to know for exams. Um, you know, one thing to be able to identify on exams is like questions where it's like they're describing someone with a disease type, right, like progeria, and you have to be able to know like progeria is caused um, the pathway for that is all in furnacelation. So being able to sort of identify what something is is really key for taking these exams. Our next, um, this is, so it's great that we finish with hydrophobic protein modifications because the next um, podcast we're going to do is on biological membranes and the sort of the components that make them up. And most of those components, as you know, fatty acids are going to be hydrophobic, and that's important for biological membranes. And we are finishing this lecture with fatty acid modifications of proteins. So next up, we're going to get into the biological membranes and just a general overview of those. So we'll see you in the next episode, biological membranes.